Let's bow your heads with me once more as we go to the Lord together to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we are glad that you sent your son, Jesus, that he condescended, that he came down, he stooped to meet us in our pollution and in our guilt, and he took it on himself. that he met us in our weakness, that he felt our human weakness and sorrow. He entered into our plight. So press these truths home to us now and press them upon our hearts and make your power perfect in our weakness. Fill us with your spirit Give us understanding and give us renewed affections for who Jesus is and what he has done. Give us renewed affections for you, for sending him, and elicit fresh praise from our lips. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, many of us have been preoccupied with giving gifts this Christmas season. And we do that, of course, to celebrate the good and greatest gift that God has given us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we remember that gift this morning. If you'll turn with me to Galatians 4, 4 through 7, we'll see that God has sent His Son into the world and His Spirit into our hearts that we might be heirs to all that God is and has. There could be no greater gift than this. Follow along with me in your own Bibles as we read Galatians 4. I'll start in verse 1 to get the context, but we'll preach just verses 4 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God sent his son. 
First point of the sermon, God sent His Son. And He did this to meet our need. Paul's been talking about how we're made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any good works we could or would do. Chapter 3, he meditated on how Jews were under the Old Testament law like a tutor or like a guardian, like a manager until Jesus came. And God's historic plan to save a people for, from their sins, the Old Testament era, was like the time when a little boy who was an heir to a fortune wasn't yet mature enough to steward it or manage it or use it himself. So the law managed God's people until Jesus came. That's how Paul is summarizing the whole Old Testament era in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The heir is God's corporate people, the church across all space and time. Before Jesus came, God's people were like a child heir. A guardian would have to oversee the boy himself, while a manager would have looked after the estate. Of course, the boy owned the whole estate, but because he wasn't allowed to manage it all until the time set by his dad, his experience was very little different than that of a slave in the house. And this, Paul says, was the state of God's people under what he calls the elementary principles of the world, which is hard to interpret. <laughs> could be the basic elements like earth, wind, fire, water. It could be essential principles of religion or essential principles of God's word. Or it could be spiritual beings like pagan gods associated with the elements of creation. I think the best way to take it is probably as a reference to the basic elements of the material world, like earth, air, fire, water. Not so much elementary principles as elemental principles. This would apply both to Jew and Gentile because both religious pagans and Old Testament Jews served religions that were based on multi-sensory material realities and experiences. Animal sacrifice, ceremonial washings, holy spaces, annual festivals, dietary restrictions. They were enslaved to all that elemental stuff. But when Jesus came, all that went out the window. For both Jews and Gentiles, Jesus came to unenslave us. So we could enjoy real spiritual access to him, personal reconciliation to him, and relationship with him without all that rigmarole, without the barrier of the veil and the symbol and the type and the shadow. In Jesus, we have the reality and direct access. And that's what he says in verse 4. And that's what God planned. God planned to send his son, which is implicit in the phrase, but when the fullness of time had come. Fullness of time as defined by who? As defined by what? Who says the time is full? What makes time full? What makes it the right time? It's the right time in God's plan. It's the right time in God's desire. It's the right time in his purpose and his love. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God the Father did that. God planned it. God timed it. God initiated it. God implemented it. The whole plan of redemption is credited here to the goodness and mercy and wisdom and love of God. God the Father. God sent forth His Son. So we should not misrepresent God. God is not bad. God is good. Does sin anger God? Yes, it does. Sin draws down God's judicial anger, His frown. It alienates us from Him and Him from us. God is a God of wrath. He is a just God. He feels righteous indignation every day over our sins, both when we neglect what we ought to do and when we do what we ought not to do. Sin does elicit God's indignation. In fact, God's holy, righteous indignation is the whole reason the incarnation is necessary if we want to be reconciled to this God. If God were not holy, if He didn't care that you are holy, if He didn't care that you reflect His image of holiness and righteousness accurately to the world and back to Him, if He didn't care about that, or if He wasn't like that at all, if he was just like you and was willing to kind of mail it in or fudge a little bit every once in a while, that'd be a different story. Then the incarnation wouldn't need to happen. Then the incarnation would have been overkill. So would the cross. But the gospel is what it is because God is who he is and that's why sin is what it is. And that's why Jesus had to come. That's why God himself had to send Jesus if we were to be made right with God because we weren't going to come up with that and we weren't going to initiate that reconciliation on our own. The whole reason God the Son had to become a human person and take on a human body was in order to satisfy God's justice by obeying His law in our place and taking our place under God's indignation in His own human body as our representative as a representative and substitute. And yet, the fact that God sent forth His Son for those reasons demonstrates that God is good. In fact, God is better than you think He is. God is better than He would be if sin were not and he didn't move to reconcile you to him in spite of your sin. God is merciful and compassionate. He is slow to anger. He's overflowing in kindness to those who take him at his word. Jesus did come down to earth willingly. That is true. But Jesus also came obediently at the Father's good and righteous and merciful command. God sent Jesus out from heaven down to earth. Jesus didn't escape from heaven. Jesus didn't run away from heaven in order to do what he did for us against the Father's will. He didn't sneak out at night. No, no, no. 
God the Father sent him out. Son, I have a job for you. And it's going to be hard. It will cause you excruciating pain. It will cause me excruciating pain. But those sinners need a Savior, and you are the only one who I will accept as a mediator for them and as a Savior to them. God sent Jesus to accomplish God's own plan to free his people. It was God's kindness that sent Jesus, and God timed it. God sent Jesus at just the right time in human history. That phrase, of course, the fullness of time, implies God had planned and overseen human history so that there was such a fullness or appropriateness of time. It's like when God created Adam, created all the animals, brought them all to Adam for Adam to name them. But then there's that tender, poignant note in Genesis 2.20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. That's intentional. God parades all the other animals in front of Adam. Name them. Long day. And eventually, maybe in the afternoon, maybe in the evening, maybe when he's going to sleep at night, it occurs to him, none of these are like me. I don't have a counterpart. Where's mine, God? I would like some company. Some like-minded company. Just some minded company. And in the fullness of time, he puts Adam to sleep. He takes a rib, creates Eve, Adam wakes up, (laughs) and he does a double take. (laughs) What? (laughs) This is what I was dreaming about. This is what I was sad about. So you see, God made Adam want what God wanted to give him. Fullness of time. It's similar with Jesus. God oversaw human history so that at just the right time, when all was prepared just as God wanted it, he would send Jesus into a culture, into a humanity, into a human situation that would be perfect for the accomplishment of redemption. Timing was everything from the manger to the temple to the relationships between Jews and Samaritans and Romans to the Roman practice of crucifixion. God timed it perfectly, and when everything was set up just so, he pulled this trigger and sent his son, and he said in heaven to his son, go now. It's time. And it was his own son that God sent, 
His son, the second person of the Trinity, eternal God, to take the form of a human person. God sent the son as his authorized messenger, mediator, agent, ambassador, sent the son to convey a message and to accomplish a mission with divine authorization to do what he did for us. And oh, what he did for us. Born of a woman, do not take that for granted. Think about this. Of all forms that Jesus could take, of all forms that the second person of the eternal Godhead could take, he took the form of a person. Why? We confessed it in the head of our catechism in order to redeem people. God did not take the same trouble I want you to process this. I'm just going to go real slow. God did not take the same trouble to redeem fallen angels out of hell. You ever think about that? God didn't send his son to become an angel, to redeem angels, because he wasn't obligated to. And he didn't want to. And God was no more obligated to send Jesus to take human form than he was to send Jesus to take angelic form. Did not have to do it. But God sent his son to become a human person to redeem sinful people. And the Bible itself makes something of this in Hebrews 2.16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. God sent his son to become a human, not an angel, because he wants to redeem people made in God's image. And angels are not made in his image. He did this for fallen people, and he did not do it for fallen angels, who are also personal beings who were able to sin and did sin, but were not redeemed. So why did Jesus have to become a person with a human body to help humanity? Well, quite simply, divinity does not die. But humanity does die. This is why Christmas is. Jesus took on human nature in order to have a body and life to lay down in our place voluntarily. To have human blood to shed for us. Incarnation is for crucifixion and resurrection. You cannot separate any of it. And crucifixion and resurrection are for ascension to God's right hand and representation there for our benefit. And intercession on our behalf. 
Hebrews 2.14 is clear on that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, us, he himself likewise partook of the same things. you believe that? That through death, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, that indissoluble connection between incarnation and crucifixion is the reason that mere sentimentalism about Christmas is not enough. The archangel Michael did not even let Mary herself get away with indulging mere sentiment about the incarnation because he warned her from the beginning, this child is for the rising and falling of many in Israel and a sword will pierce your own heart. Incarnation is not an end in itself. Incarnation is for representation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, mediation, and intercession. That's a Christian Christmas. We have a tradition in our home that I don't apologize for. I love this tradition because I love the Muppets. And every Christmas Eve, we watch a Muppets Christmas Carol. And we did it last night, and we all enjoyed it. We all sang along. It's hilarious. I'm a huge Kermit fan. But it is noticeable in those songs that what they're celebrating is really just civility. There's nothing of Jesus in those songs. There's nothing of redemption. There's not even anything of incarnation. It's just I want to be really nice, and I want to have the spirit of Christmas throughout the year, and I want to be kind and generous. It is shorn of anything meaningful about the incarnation. And is this not how... All of the world celebrates Christmas. I just want to remember what it's like to be human and to care about other humans. I need to shop for other people, not just for myself. But we read in the Bible, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus did not just appear human or live only temporarily as a human. He became and still is fully and forever human while retaining his full divinity. He is and always will be the God-man. He is fully God to represent us, fully man to represent humanity to God. This is what makes him the only perfect being to mediate our relationship with God because He is in Himself fully God and fully man forever. I was at a ordination council with a bunch of pastors and we were examining this candidate for ministry and it came up that this brother was not incredibly solid on the fact that Jesus retains His humanity forever. And the brother who was leading the ordination council was my seminary professor, and I don't know that I had ever heard this phrase before. It was a theological phrase, but it has stuck with me. So we were, 
we were discussing this brother and we were just saying that he was not solid on this point and so my professor said uh, that he needed work on what, what he referred to as the doctrine of the perpetuity of the incarnation. That is a wonderful phrase. I have come to hope in it. He's still human. <laughs> and he has to be to represent me and you because we're human. He has to mediate. Who better to mediate between us and God than the God-man, Christ Jesus? But he was born not only of a woman, he was born under the law. He was born under the law of Moses, the law of God, the Jewish law. He was born as a Jew. He was subject to the same law that had enslaved God's people under its elemental principles of religious washing, sacrifices, ceremonies, feasts, and laws. Why was that? Why was Jesus born under that law? Why do you have to be a Jew? Why couldn't he have been a Scandinavian? It was so Jesus could obey the whole command of that law so that he could fulfill all the elemental principles of that law, free us from those, and then endure the curse of the law for disobedience to the law on our behalf. And so fulfill the whole significance of that law in his own person, obedience, death, resurrection. He would do under the law what we were unable to do for ourselves under the law and what we were unwilling to do for ourselves under the law. He would obey it all and then he would suffer the penalty for disobeying it all. He would do this in our place for our sins and he would do it at Passover time during the fulfillment of one of the elemental principles of the law. And he would hang on a tree because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree according to the Mosaic law. And then God would vindicate his innocence and righteousness by raising him from the dead. And it is in this way that Jesus came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it in order to redeem those under the law. That's us. We were under the law. We were under the law's command and curse. We were unable to obey the command and we were unable to endure the curse. This child is the one who would get us out from under the law's command and curse as the controlling way of relating to God, which was impossible for us. Jesus would function as our representative to obey the law's command in our place, and he would function as our substitute, enduring the curse of the law in our place, since the law said, again, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And to redeem is to buy out from under the slavery of another's ownership. It's the purchasing of freedom through the payment of a ransom price. Chapter 3, verse 13 of Galatians, we were redeemed from the curse of the law by Jesus becoming a curse for us. This is the purpose of Jesus' incarnation and arrival in the world. He did not become a man simply to give us a moral example of how to live a good life or how to love people. He did not come in order to teach us how to win friends and influence people. He did not even come to live a life that would persuade us that God thinks the world of us and loves us more than we can know. He came to live and die as a sinless substitute 
for sinful people to buy our freedom with his blood. But he had to have blood. Nor did Jesus become a person to die for people only that we might be saved to indulge the pleasures of sin without having to suffer the penalty of sin. He didn't come to take on our humanity, live sinlessly, give his body up and his blood up in death only so that we could sin with impunity and feel okay about ourselves. Because, well, Jesus died for that. It doesn't matter because Jesus died. No. What Jesus redeems us from is not just sin's penalty, but its power. He saves us from sin, not to sin. His death to sin is our death to the power of sin. But his death under the wrath of God is our death to the wrath of God as well. We died in him. His death counted for us so that we're no longer slaves to God's wrath. To the fear of death and hell. Jesus saved us from all of that by enduring it for us. But our response to that is not moral laxity carefulness and reverence, gratitude, respect, honor, awe, and loyalty, loyal obedience. Yet that's not all. He redeemed us, not as an end in itself, but so that we could be adopted as sons by God, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus didn't just save us from something negative. He saved us for something positive. He took us out from under the law's condemnation and then brought us into the family of God on his own merits. He earned our place as sons in God's family. We now get to treat God as father. That's still a relationship of authority, but it's also a relationship of tenderness, joy, kindness, privilege, generosity, compassion, delight, Love, closeness. That is the status that Jesus earned for us. The question is, are you enjoying it? Are you entering into that status of adopted sonship with God in Christ? Or are you just content that you got out of the bad stuff? Jesus didn't just save you from, he saved you for. If you are in Christ, then Christian, this is how God views you, as an adopted son in his family. Your position in the family is not in question or in doubt. Jesus has secured your sonship by the merit of his own obedient life, death, and resurrection. You are in if you are in Christ. You're all the way in. And you're never going to be turned out. And you are just as in 
as if you had been the one to do all that Jesus did for you. You realize that? You are just as in with God as if you had done everything that Jesus did to earn your place. As if you had done all that. That's how God views you. And all this, remember, was at God's own initiative. This didn't happen behind God's back. This didn't happen because Jesus tied God's hands or pulled one over on him. The Father decided to adopt you. The Son accomplished the redemption that was necessary to adopt you, and now you are adopted never to be disowned. Your place in the family is secure, not because of your obedience, but because of Jesus' obedience and death. God chose to adopt you and redeem you when He did not have to do that. He was not obligated to redeem or adopt fallen angels, and He did not do it. He was not obligated to redeem or adopt fallen people, but He did adopt all those in Christ, and so also with Christ. Jesus willingly and forever took our human form on himself. That is how committed he is to mediating our relationship with his Father. And therefore, you should love both the Father for initiating our redemption and the Son for earning it and accomplishing it for you. You should show your undying gratitude for Christ's dying love to you by your obedience to the Father's house rules. Be holy, For I am holy, and you are now in my house, and I have renewed my image in you, and this is how we act. I want to draw just a brief church application here, a corporate worship application, before we go on to our second point, which will be briefer. If elemental principles are externals of Jewish worship, purifications, washings, all the multi-sensory stuff of the tabernacle and the temple, diets and days, then at least part of the freedom that Paul is talking about here is freedom from that kind of elemental stuff in worship. And freedom for a simplicity in worship that emphasizes its character as worship in spirit and truth. That's actually how Paul himself applies it in verses 8 to 10. They're going back to observing days, months, seasons, years, elementary principles. Gospel worship is simple worship. So to introduce things like complex liturgical calendars... Or strobe lights, or smoke machines, and skits, or even slavish conformity to times of the year, would seem like going back to the elemental principles from which Christ has freed us. This is exactly how the Protestant reformers reasoned against. Roman Catholic smells and bells, the Mass. They called it Jewish. 
They called it going back to those ceremonial externals. And of course, we love to criticize Catholics for their smells and bells. As evangelicals, we pride ourselves on not being slaves to such things, as having been freed from that, having known better, having been taught better. But there is an evangelical version of Catholic or Anglican smells and bells. It's just far less formal. But it's still viewed as necessary for achieving intimacy with God in corporate public worship. It just looks different. Big screens, movie clips, skits, amps. Let's not go back to elementary principles. Now, of course, there is room for levels of disagreement there. We can love and unite with other churches who don't do things exactly the way we do musically. But it would seem best to keep worship simple and spiritual with a capital S. Let's make sure that the Spirit of God is welcome here to use the Word of God to do the work of God among the people of God for the glory of God so that He alone is worshipped and praised and credited with whatever fruit comes. Second, more briefly, God sent not only His Son, God sent His Spirit in verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Now get that reasoning straight. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The reason we get the Spirit is not something we did. We get it because of the status of sonship that Jesus earned for us in His obedient life, death, and resurrection. The Spirit of God is not an optional extra that only super-Christians enjoy, like heated leather seats on the high-end trim package. The Spirit is not a spoiler on the back of your car. The Spirit comes standard with sonship just because you are a son of God based on the merits of Jesus. And if you are concerned about the presumed sexism of this sonship language, we should just remind one another that sons, firstborn sons, inherited in first century Near Eastern culture. That's why it insists on sonship language, because only sons became heirs. So even if you were a Christian woman, you are treated as a first century firstborn son of God even though the culture did not treat you like that. We have Christianity to thank for that, not feminism. But the only criteria for getting the Spirit is sonship, the status of sonship that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is getting confused today. 
in many churches and among many believers. Often, you are told on the internet or at church, you don't have the Spirit because you have not had an extra experience besides getting a new heart that that believes and repents. You're told you have not had an extra experience besides that. You're told you have to do, do this or feel that. You have to talk like this or worship like that or achieve a certain level of godliness. But John Stott is right when he says no other qualification is needed. There is no need to recite some formula or strive after some experience or fulfill some extra condition. The way God assures us of our sonship is not by some spectacular gift or sign, but by the quiet inward witness of the Spirit as we pray. It's inward. Notice, where does God send the Spirit of His Son? He sends Him into our hearts. And when God does that, the Spirit doesn't just produce a feeling. He produces new thoughts, new understandings, new priorities, new desires, new appetites, new loves and motives, new appreciations, new understandings and commitments, along with new sorrows and new joys and new meltings over sin and over the love of Christ new resolves for obedience, new longings for fellowship and friendship with other like-minded Christians and like-minded churches, and a new desire to be present and accounted for at corporate worship with the local church as Christ's visible body. He produces a new humility, a new longing to know God and Christ for who He is from His own Word, new appreciation for all Jesus is as the image of the invisible God and as the all-sufficient Savior who shows compassion to sinners. There's a new eagerness to take counsel and also a new confidence in God's truth. And all this and more is what the Spirit does when God the Father sends Him into our hearts. He starts on His work of teaching and transforming, renewing and purifying. He is the Spirit of truth. And once the Spirit enters your heart, you start to have a new love and appreciation and understanding of the truth as revealed in the Word that was breathed out by God's Spirit in Scripture. They're inseparable. And He is the Holy Spirit. So He sets about to make us holy in heart by the power of God's truth in Scripture and in Christ. And because He's in our hearts doing these things, this is not just behavior modification. It's a change of heart. It's a change of nature. It's the reception of a whole new capacity for relating to God in a reconciled, loving way. So these are the things that you look for in your heart to see if the Spirit is actually there. Truth, holiness, and love for God and His people. But we also look for a spirit of prayer because the Spirit calls out to God as Father. When God sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit cries out from our hearts to God, calling Him Father. The Spirit is the Spirit of prayer and supplication. 
When God makes us his adopted sons in Christ, God wants us to begin talking to him like sons talk to a good father. Like they have a relationship with him. Like they believe that their father loves them. Like they believe that their father understands what's best for them better than they understand it. That kind of relationship. Trusting. Implicitly trusting. And so we ask our Father for provision, for counsel, for protection. We are impressed with his strength. We appreciate his tenderness. And we rejoice in his love. And we thank him for his goodness. That's why he puts the spirit of his son into our hearts, because he wants us to communicate to him like his eternal son communicates to him. So that we will have an internal impulse to talk to him in prayer. Friends, we will never regret praying. You are never going to regret praying. No one gets to heaven and thinks, "Ah, why did I pray so much? No one is saying that in heaven. Brothers, I want to talk to you in particular right now. We men like to work. Sometimes we like to work for the right reasons, and sometimes we like to work for the wrong reasons. We like to work because it makes us feel productive. And we like to work because sometimes we don't like to think about anything other than work because thinking about something other than work might make us feel bad or bring upon us an obligation that we don't want to bear and don't know what to do about. Working sometimes is a way of avoiding life. Working hard is all well and good until we let a presumed work ethic convince us that we should do anything with our time other than pray because praying doesn't feel productive in the same way working feels productive and praying confronts me with the reality of myself before God. And now i got to deal with that. And I don't want to deal with that So I'm going to go into work early today. But let's just agree together now, brothers, that faithful prayer to a faithful, omnipotent God is the most productive thing we could possibly do, no matter what it feels like to us. Brothers, let's be committed to being praying men. Whether it's by ourselves or with our families or together here at church, let's make sure God's house in this place is rightly called, accurately called, a house of prayer. The implication in verse 7 is that we are no longer slaves under the law, but sons of God. And because we are sons, 
then we are heirs of God's richness by God's own doing, through God. You didn't slip in in the back door. You didn't sneak in for dinner. God invited you. God made you an adopted heir. You're not stealing. You're there rightly. You belong at his table. He puts you in his will. All that is his will one day be ours, and that is by his own will and working. Christian, you are an heir of God. That puts everything else into perspective, doesn't it? You are an heir of God. Money, time, possessions, job, family, house, education, all you have in this world is nothing compared to what God is committing to give you in the world to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, when you will worship with all God's people before Christ for all eternity, learning and loving the inexhaustible depths of Jesus Christ's person and work. That is never going to get old. You will have infinite energy and interest in that. And that is better than anything you could work for in this world. Anything you could save, any legacy you could give. And this inheritance is why we should do all things without grumbling and complaining. What would you think of a trust fund kid? What do you think of trust fund kids? (laughs) When all they ever do is complain about what they ain't got and what they're not allowed to do and why they don't have this and that freedom and why they have a curfew. What do you think about that kind of trust fund kid? Spoiled brat is what you think. Wait your turn. It's all yours. It's all coming to you. What in the world are you complaining about? Yes. Christian, look in the mirror. You are an heir of God. How dare we complain about anything ever? It is all coming to us. And sooner than we think. This is what should drive our contentment. This is what helps us not to live for money and possessions, but to live rather for eternity and to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And if we are sons and heirs of God together in Christ, then we have no reason for jealousy or envy or covetousness towards each other, whether it's in what we have or whether it's in our abilities. There's no reason for me to be jealous of you or for you to be jealous of me or for you to be jealous or envious of each other. Why? Because we're all going to share the same inheritance. And it's going to be spectacular. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law 
so that we might have adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There can be no better gift than that. And I hope and pray that it's yours this Christmas. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you are good beyond all of our wildest hopes to have sent your Son in the fullness of time. Born of a woman, made forever human, born under your law, so that we might not forever be under the law's curse. And that we might know the reality and closeness of a fellowship with you that is only mediated by your Son, our Savior, Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, may we make the most of such great privileges in prayer. May we cry out to you, Father. May we look forward to the inheritance that is laid up for us. Unfading, undefiled, imperishable, kept in heaven for all of us who are in Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen.